Uh, Gary's also going to be speaking from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. And so you might like to turn there, but I'll pray briefly for Gary and then uh, he'll come and speak. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the ministry of your word. And we thank you that your word is to go to everyone everywhere. And so we uh, commit Gary to you in his ministry um, as Bishop of Northwest Australia and uh, pray uh, for any of us here for whom that might be our call from you, that you would put it on our hearts uh, to have that great need um, filled by the preaching of the gospel. Uh, So please be with us all as Gary comes to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Just make a few rearrangements here. I've got old, tired eyes. Um, And this is, I think, the sixth location I've been to in this last week or so. (laughs) And um, um, so my sleep um, has... uh, been slightly affected in this last week, so um, if I go to sleep, you'll excuse me, won't you? <laughs> but it is really good to be here. Um, I feel like this is my my second home, and it's um, lovely to uh, always come back and appreciate the great facilities that are now here compared to when um, I first came, and compared to the times when I kept having dead rats underneath my floor in my office. Um, But it really is great to be with you, and I bring greetings from the Saints in Northwest Australia, and also a big thank you for those brave, Sydney-defying souls that headed west for mission. Um, We all appreciated your coming, both to uh, Geraldton and also to the hardy few that managed to get out to uh, Newman. So thank you very much. So let's just pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It was breakfast after the 6.45 service and I'm sitting next to an excited conversation. I can't but tune in, yet as I listen, I become increasingly distressed and I can but interrupt and say, well, when are you going to get married? But the look I received told it all. Here's a widow who's attended church for most of her life, yet now is... Um, having no qualms about moving in with a man, a man who wasn't even a Christian. Over the next few months, I discovered uh, many key people in churches from neighbouring towns in a similar situation. So I directed the ministers to talk to them and seek to rectify their living arrangements. Holiness in sexual matters isn't high on people's horizons where I come from. And with recent changes in societal opinions, it's diminishing even further. The importance of God's word and his framework for good living, living that's pleasing to him, seems to be at a very low ebb. Friends, you're here being equipped for a word ministry, equipped with skills for a lifelong journey of service. It's essential that you retain a firm grip on the centrality of declaring God's purposes in Jesus Christ. Essential that you have that grip of spending committed time in God's word 
allowing it to shape both your personal and ministry lives. For making God's word known must not be watered down, must not be compromised in the face of ever-increasing community pressure and rejection. So please come with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and I'll read verses 1 and 2. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. You'll recall how on Paul's second missionary journey he ends up in Greece. And as Paul and Silas enter into Europe, they experience both the joy of seeing people converted as well as the pain of rejection by those fearful of the gospel's impact. But yet, under God, a church is is, uh, planted in the city of Thessalonica. And so when Paul and Silas leave after the incident with Jason recorded in Acts 17, concern for the welfare of these new Christians is very real. And Paul's depth of feeling is obvious as he writes in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And so Timothy is sent to see how they're persevering under pressure. And upon his return, Paul's delighted by Timothy's news. Why? For they're standing firm in the faith, as Paul talks about in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. So as we come to chapter 4, how does Paul's continuing pastoral concern for the Thessalonians show itself? Principally by a key reminder about godly living. So firstly, the importance of instruction. Friends, Paul grounds this turning point in his letter by asking and urging the Thessalonian Christians in the Lord Jesus to keep living in a manner that pleases God. It, of course, echoes Paul's face-to-face teaching as reflected back in chapter 2. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Twice in these opening verses, Paul refers to his previous teaching. They've heard his teaching, they know his teaching, yet he wants them to press on by living it out more and more. Paul's missionary gospel preaching didn't shy away from moral exhortation. For turning to God from idols wasn't simply a change in thinking or beliefs, but rather a deep-seated transformational lifestyle change, observably different, separate from those that they lived amongst. And Paul's teaching comes with the Lord's authority. So what he's urging here isn't some optional extra, not like putting on some fog lights to see in the middle of the night, not at all. Rather, It's not something which is simply well-intentioned advice about Christian living, but rather it is a must. It is a must. And so this new Christian community is to overflow in 
a pleasing God lifestyle. But without this teaching from God's word, without people having a firm, reliable, biblical foundation, then what takes place? A Christian community sitting loose to God's instructions for godly living. In a state that suffered historically from a paucity of God's word, from a shortage of committed Bible teachers, then a drought of lifestyles pleasing to God has taken root and continues to deepen in intensity. This drought even affects the public reading of scripture for you only read what you agree with and you leave the rest out. While morally you live to please yourself, particularly making sure you're in line with current societal views. In contrast, we know that Paul and his mission team sought to imitate Christ, teaching and modelling a God-driven ethical um, living. Recall Philippians where he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Tony and Audrey arrive in Broome from a remote community for medical treatment. During their stay, they're invited along to our Aboriginal congregation. And it provides for them an opportunity to hear God's word faithfully taught. Consequently, under God's mercy, they repent and place their trust in Jesus. And as their disciple, Tony and Audrey, realise that their lives need readjusting. Changes have to be made because now they belong to Jesus, to Jesus as Lord. And so they ask our minister to marry them. You see, Tony and Audrey have been living together unmarried for many, many years. But in the light of clear, uncompromising biblical teaching, they know what they have to do to live a life pleasing to God. And so the marriage occurs in this small remote community, some seven to nine hours, depending on the weather and everything else, drive from Broome. And everyone turns up. What a great opportunity to preach the gospel. And so now there is a small group of Christians meeting in this remote Aboriginal community using material supplied from the Broome Church. See, bringing the gospel to the nations is what keeps us pressing on in the northwest, as I trust it does for you as well. So the importance of instruction. But secondly, the importance of holiness. Paul continues by spotlighting the key to pleasing God here, doesn't he? He says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now the call to holiness is like a golden thread weaving its way through scripture. Holiness was to define Israel, God's desired purpose for them. We see this clearly at Sinai as God's covenant shapes Israel to be a holy nation. Well, it's the motivation for Levitical commands, isn't it? You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Yet this boundary marker separating Israel from the other nations is sadly rejected. And Isaiah proclaims it so clearly, doesn't he, where he says, Ah, sinful nation, they've forsaken the Lord, they've despised the Holy One of Israel, 
they are utterly estranged. The holy nation is now the sinning nation. And that rejection of holiness was evidenced in its effects. Rebellion, desolation, offensive religiosity and, of course, injustice. True and right living comes from a commitment to God and his will. But Isaiah declares that the Holy One of Israel has been treated with contempt. God's people have turned their backs on him. And so the only hope for people rejecting God's will for holy living is God's atoning, guilt-cleansing hand, as we see in Isaiah 6. And so Isaiah says God will act through his servant, his chosen one, to bring salvation and restoration to his people. And in that day, they'll once more be called his holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And God's saving action will vindicate his holiness on a global scale, with his people cleansed, given a new heart and blessed with God's spirit within. And obedience will follow, a life pleasing to the Lord. Friends, God's will for his people is always for holiness. And the Apostle Peter, of course, repeats that constant biblical refrain, doesn't he, as he renews the call to holiness for Christians scattered in Asia Minor in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. And so Paul continues on in this passage with the importance of sexual purity. Holiness of life involves obedience to apostolic teaching. And in this context, Paul is focusing on sexual purity because it is God's will to abstain from all forms of phenomena. And declaring this word in our current environment is a dangerous step. Even if you don't quote the Bible accurately like Israel Folau, it is a very dangerous step. Yet we fail our congregations if we refrain from taking this stand. Just as Paul would have failed the Thessalonians if, he hadn't re- if he'd retreated from renewing God's call to holiness. For these Christians were interacting in a bustling trade city tolerant of sexual conduct, particularly sexual activity outside of marriage. And so the urgency to restate God's will for holiness in sexual areas must surely have captured Paul's mind as he wrote this. And you can recall how abstaining from sexual immorality was also a a key feature of the Jerusalem Council's declaration. And so Paul continues by filling out, in a sense, the implication of the prayer he prayed in chapter 3, verse 13, as he writes, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Though there may be some debate over the detail here, the intent is clear. Christians, whether married or single, must control their sexual conduct according to God's call for holy living. Controlling our bodies in holiness and honour reflects God's will, while control, perhaps unrestrained control, by lustful passions, demonstrates a lifestyle ignorant of God. And, of course, Paul has filled that out in Romans 1, hasn't he? The implications of not knowing God. Christians have a moral standard distinguishing them from those that they live amongst. 
Paul's use of honour here may suggest, I guess, a concern for the other person. That is, sexual control over our body will lead to treating others with respect, while control by lustful passions is essentially self-centred. Or perhaps in today's PC language, personal autonomy is the control centre for self-fulfilment. And that's exactly the government's line in the euthanasia debate in WA at the moment. Personal autonomy is the key principle. But I think this other person-centred viewpoint here is what makes most sense as you flow into verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The boundary marker of holiness and honour says, don't take selfish advantage over a brother by impure sexual activity. And then Paul seeks to reinforce what he's been saying by offering up three foundational, fundamental reasons to be holy. Firstly, he talks about his call to holiness in the light of a severe warning. Look at verse 6. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Sin cannot be concealed from the Lord. King David found that out, didn't he? Even if our sin is in secrecy or in a deceptive setting. For justice will certainly occur. And then Paul reminds them of God's past call. Verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Their attitudes and actions must be framed by God's will, not by their previous idolatrous worship and practice. And then Paul concludes in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul's call to holiness is grounded in God's person and work. And so we're to be holy since God commands it and because he's given us his spirit who is holy to dwell within us. Israel's eschatological hope for holiness is made possible through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this key blessing of the eschatological age is inaugurated in and through the Messiah. But what we see here is Israel hope being fulfilled in Gentiles as well as Jews. For God's cleansed the Thessalonian Christians from their idolatry, enabling them to serve him, walking in obedience through the gift of his spirit. And so Paul continues to urge these new believers to live holy lives. Friends, we're not called to please ourselves nor to achieve our best interests or even our own happiness. Rather, the whole of our Christian life must be God-centred. Our aim is a lifestyle that pleases the Lord. A God-centred life is one of holiness, a life abstaining from all forms of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Our sexual purity is grounded in Christ's atoning work on the cross along with the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. We're not immune to sexual temptations because we're theological students. So I wonder if we're encouraging each other to be holy. Are we encouraging one another to take Paul's words seriously? In what ways are we holding one another accountable for this area of our lives? Realistic support 
and targeted prayer should surround us. Yet we're here being equipped to be preachers and teachers of God's word. Preachers in a world that stands aloof, even hostile at times, to our call for holiness. And as we preach, we're asking for a paradigm shift in a believer's mindset, in the grid that they appraise, experience and shape values. So friends, it's vital for us that we both teach and model sexual purity in all our attitudes, words and actions. A holiness of life honouring the Lord who died to secure our sanctification. So will you strive together, courageously, to defend the faith and proclaim the truth of God's holy way to live, even in the face of ridicule and rejection? Friends, we belong to the Lord Christ and through his spirit are empowered to live differently. May we keep praying for one another along with those serving in the remote churches of northwest Australia. May we keep encouraging one another to faithfully declare God's word. So let me pray. Dear Father, as the God of peace, may you sanctify all of us completely and may our whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.